Well, back in October of 99, um, Payne Stewart was flying from Florida to what he was supposed to be Dallas, Texas. He's a golfer, probably in the previous generation. Um, he was known for his knickerbockers. That's what he would wear when he'd play in tournaments. He was headed to a tournament in Texas, took off from Sanford, Florida, but his plane never turned to the left about Gainesville. And so the control tower noticed something's not right, they're not communicating, it's continuing to go straight. So they summoned some F-15 fighter jets to go and find out what was wrong, and one of the pilots got within about 50 feet and noticed that the windows uh, of the cockpit were just completely frosted over. Which means there was a loss of cabin pressure, and more than likely, this must have occurred early in the flight in the ascent. When that occurs and you climb an altitude, temperatures can drop in the cabin probably at 40 below zero in the cabin at that point. And so nothing they could do except to let the plane, the plane continue to make its straight flight until it ran out of fuel, and that's what they did. Everything inside, everyone inside, was more than likely dead at this point, just as they crossed the Florida border. But they went 1,500 more miles until they plummeted right over Aberdeen, South Dakota. The, the force of the crash was so strong that it created a, uh, a crater. It burrowed into the ground 40 feet deep. If you would have seen that jet flying across the sky or if you'd have been in another airline and maybe seen it, that Learjet, just making quick progress, at some points it climbed to above 50,000 feet, um, you would have thought everything was fine because the root of the problem with that jet wasn't external, was it? The wings looked okay. The plane's paint job looked fine. It's a classy-looking aircraft. Who would have thought something was wrong? But the root of what was wrong was inside. And so it was just flying headlong, looking like things were okay, when really inside everyone was dead. You know, planes aren't the only thing that can appear to have life on the outside, but sometimes everything's dead on the inside. So can human beings. We can appear that we're doing just fine when really we may be on a, a cross-country flight just waiting to plummet to our destruction. You see, more important than planes is our life. And in Mark 7, Christ addresses the root of what's really wrong with our lives. And it's not an external issue. It is an internal one. Let me show you what he says. Mark chapter 7. We open your Bibles to that section of Scripture. Let's continue in our journey through this book. As Christ encounters once again the Pharisees and the scribes. And he clarifies for them in these first 23 verses what's the root problem. I'll begin reading in verse 1. My goal today is to look through three lenses with you. We'll take a look at the textual lens. Then we'll look at things through a doctrinal lens. What's being affirmed in this narrative and then we'll take some time to look through a practical lens. What does that mean for us? Where does that leave us? That's my goal today. I'll not take any live questions just for sake of time, but if you have some, use our app, text them in. I'll get to them this week, either video or in written form, and help you have some more understanding for this text. Here's what Mark would write to us under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Verse 1, Now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, okay, already verse 1, can we just admit that's the center of the opposition right there, okay? It's from Jerusalem and the scribes and the Pharisees. They had already been plotting to put him to death by now. You saw this earlier in Mark. We reviewed that and studied it. So they're out to get Jesus, to end his life. These are the central players in that plot. They've gathered now from Jerusalem. They've come to, to him and they, they see that some of his disciples... It says here, they ate with hands that were defiled, that is unwashed. So there's the accusation. Verses 3 and 4 give us a parenthetical um, explanation for why they were observing that. 
Why was that a big deal to the Pharisees and the scribes? Why were they quick to notice that? Here's what verses 3 and 4 say. Notice it's, it's in parenthesis, so it's kind of an explanation. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly. The word properly there means kind of in a fisted fashion. It's kind of a hard phrase to grapple with. Some of your translations, translations may say in a fist. It just simply refers to this, I believe. That they would cup their hands like this and the amount of water they could get in there for this offense at least. The amount of water they could get in there would be enough to cleanse their hands. He's not talking about like a, a serious offense. He's talking about what I would call like a first grade offense. He explains it, in fact, in the next few verses. He says, they're holding to the tradition of the elders that when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash properly. You see that word in verse 3? I mean, verse 3. He's saying that when they come to the marketplace, they don't wash. And there are other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and, dinner and dining couches, or the word there could be beds. In other words, when they come from the marketplace and they may have come in contact with a Gentile, and the Jews feeling contaminated. I need to get a little bit of water in the kind of the fist, the palm of my hand. I need to get that. I need to make sure that I am no longer contaminated. That's the proper washing when you've been around those who are unclean. And if you've used a pot or a vessel or if your instruments have come in contact with them or if you touched one and you sat on your sofa or your bed or your couch, oops, you've got to clean that too because you've sat on it after you touched them. In other words, we've just got to make sure that we're clean. Does that make sense? That's what's going on here. And so the Pharisees and scribes are like, Jesus, your disciples aren't doing this. That's why verse 5 continues the narrative. They ask him, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? Notice it's not the commandment of God. It's not the Mosaic law. It's the tradition of the elders. Now, I want to just pause here and explain what's going on with that phrase, the tradition of the elders. Later, Christ is going to refer to the, to the law of Moses. So what's the difference here? Well, the tradition of the elders is an oral tradition that developed among the Pharisees in which they would take God's law, now watch this, and add to it things they felt would help you better obey it. But they never said, here's some suggestions or here's some tips Here's some ways that perhaps are our opinion. Here's our preferences. They would come at it and say, hey, here's, here's extra parts of the law that if you don't do, do it this way, you're sinning. You're breaking God's law, but it wasn't really in the law. And it was only passed down orally. In fact, history tells us this, that these oral traditions of the elders became what they called in Jewish culture the Mishnah. And the Mishnah forms the foundation for the Talmud, which is the Jewish book of how to go about life, preferences and protocols and processes. They're all traditions, ordinances, kind of commandments of men. In fact, did you know that there's only one verse in the Levitical law that speaks of washing of hands in this way, and it's reserved for the high priest? There is not a law that demands that the regular Jewish people on an everyday basis wash their hands when they come in from the marketplace. There's not. But it was an invention of the Pharisees passed down orally to give them some ways they could maybe implement the law's intent. Well, this was a problem because they had raised it to the level of the commands of God. And so Christ takes aim at the real intention of of their ordinances, their traditions. And so he says in verse 6, by the way, he never even addresses their question. You notice that in this case? He doesn't defend the disciples. He doesn't, um, he doesn't even address this. He just says, guys, Isaiah prophesied of you hypocrites when he said this. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Circle the word heart in verse 6, would you? In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. So he calls them hypocrites. He tags them right off the bat. Why? Because they were saying one thing. We should obey the commandments of God, but they were doing another. They were actually just obeying their own ordinances. Here's what I think is so ironic. The actual law points to Christ as the fulfillment of everything God promised. And yet they were missing who the law was pointing to, making up their own laws, and then saying they're following Jesus. They really weren't. 
They were following themselves. They were inventing systems and avenues and processes and protocols and procedures that would make them the authority, that would make them appear righteous and missing the real commandment of God and the real intent of the law, which was to point to Jesus Christ. So he calls them hypocrites, says, your heart is far from me, even though in vain you had these, uh, these actions, these appearances that, that you look like you're playing the part. Verse 8, he succinctly brings along this indictment. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. In fact, if you were to circle verse 8, you could actually say that at verse 8, um, he, he actually is swinging between the first example of this with the washing of hands, how they left the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. They did that in the washing of hands. And then verses 9 through 13, they do it also in how they treat their parents. It's kind of a hinge verse. Like, wow, you just don't do this in one area about hand washing. You do this in how you treat your aging parents. Look what he says. Verse 9, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother. That's the fifth commandment in the Decalogue. Later in the law, of course, it says, whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. So he's here lifting up a much greater issue. Church, don't miss this. The first issue was a first great offense. You're rubbing your shoulders with a Gentile. You're coming in contact with someone who's unclean ceremonially. And you're worried about washing your hands and your, your cups and your pots and your couches. You want to make sure everything's uncontaminated. That's not that big of a deal. But when it comes to really what does matter, like taking care of aging parents, look how you've devised a system to get out of that responsibility. This is a big deal. He says, the commandment says, honor your father and mother. Look at verse 11. But you say, what a contrasting uh, indictment there. When God has spoken, instead you say, in other words, you're establishing your authority, you think. You say, if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you would have gained from me is Corbin. In other words, in your aging years when you need help, what I could have used to help you, sorry mom, sorry dad, I've designated that as Corbin. That's the Hebrew word for gift or devoted to God. And so I can't use it now because it's given to God. It looks like someone's really being spiritual. Like they're actually being very generous perhaps, right? The truth is they're just simply getting out of responsibility. They're devising a wicked way to actually follow God's commands. To avoid following God's commands. He addresses this. He says, you, 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 you designate something as Corbin. Then that person does not have to use it to help their parents. And look at verse 12 says then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother. So the Pharisees here were, and the scribes, they were actually in authority over the property, resources, and stuff that this person had kind of designated to the temple. So, so it's an amazing the kind of authority they think they have that actually is helping people disobey God and not obey him. It's a twisted system. So I hope you're understanding what's happening here. They devised a method, a process, a way in which they could appear to be righteous when in reality they're actually avoiding simply obeying what God said. And the Pharisees would help them do this. It's crazy. He says in verse 13 that when they do this, they make the word of God void. You see that? Or they nullify it. And they do this by their tradition that you've handed down. And then he just kind of adds this P.S. <laughs> and many such things you do. So it wasn't just in the washing of hands, church. And it wasn't just in larger offenses dealing with aging parents. This was kind of a cross-the-board mentality. This is kind of SOP, standard operating procedure when it comes to the Pharisees. Let's find all kinds of ways to make sure that the way we think think things ought to be run is more important than what God says so that we appear more righteous than we really are. Let's attack everything from the outside in. Let's duct tape this and, and, and fix that on the outside so that we look like something we're really not. All the while, the aircraft of the Pharisees is zooming along, but everything inside is dead. They have lost total cabin pressure.
Which is exactly what Jesus says in verse 14. He's now speaking to the people at large and he's warning them of this lifestyle of of addressing things from the outside in. Trying to look temporarily like you're alive. Trying to have an, an image to manage the perception. He says in verse 14, he called the people to him again. He said to them, hear me all of you and understand there is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. A very simple, succinct, powerful summary of his interaction with the Pharisees. Guys, it's not what's happening on the outside. It's not the marketplace and your contact with Gentiles. It's not your financial situation or lack of it. It's not an external issue. That's not the problem. The real issue is what's inside you already that's coming out. It's a, it, it had to just stun the Jews. It had to anger the Pharisees. It confused the disciples because they enter the house and they ask him in verse 17 about this parable. And so in a frustrated fashion, not a sinfully frustrated fashion, but almost this, this, this continued like irritation with their slowness. Jesus says to them, are you also without understanding? Like, guys, how long, how much, how much time do you need to finally get this? He's been teaching them, right? This is not the first time we've seen their understanding kind of uh, slow in coming. The word here is the idea of being dull or calloused. And so you can kind of see Jesus just scraping the skin off, right? Getting to the real root of the issue. He says, guys, listen, let me explain to you again. Do you not see, this is verse 18, that whatever goes into a person from the outside cannot defile him. Since it enters not his heart, say that with me, heart, but his stomach and is expelled. You see what's happening here? He's using this metaphor of the physical things around us to speak of how the Pharisees were approaching life. Let's just do it from the outside in. Let's protect ourselves and let's make sure that that the outside is correct and maybe that will fix the inside. But there is no fix for the heart if you only approach the outside because, for instance, food. You can wash your hands and eat clean food, but it doesn't go to your heart. Where does it go? Your stomach and then out, right? He's saying, so if you're trying to fix the heart through the outside in, it's not going to help. Food never gets to your heart in that way. He's making the point that, you, that the outside is not what fixes the inside. Because that's not the problem. The problem is not the outside. The problem is the inside. We need something on the inside to fix what's wrong on the inside. And so he says here, what goes into a person from the outside cannot defile him. Verse 19, since it enters his heart, not his, uh, and since it enters not his heart, but his stomach and is expelled. And by this he declared all foods clean. Here's an editorial comment by Mark, I think, uh, just divinely inspired to show those who would later read this, probably in the city of Rome, that there were no out-of-bounds foods any longer. This probably helped the Gentile readers who would read this later. But Jesus did say this. Watch this now. What comes out of a person is what defiles him. Wow. So there's something wrong with me inside already? And what comes out of that is the problem, not what comes into me? Exactly. Look what he says. For out of the, what? Say it, church. Heart of man. Come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness. Those are all plural in the original language. What are they, six or seven there? They're plural actions. He begins with the seat and lists singular appetites. Attitudes. Look what he says next. Deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. Do you see what's happening here? He's listing multiple types of actions in the plural form, but saying that they come from, from singular appetites in the heart. So whether it's an appetite or an action, they're coming from this heart that's already in us. That's defiled. Our problem is not an external. 
Jesus said in verse 23, all these evil things come from, say it church, within. And they defile a person. In fact, in your Bibles, you should do this. You know, I'm a big fan of marking your Bibles and circling and squaring and starring and different colored inks. I think you should circle the word within in verse 23 and draw a line back to the word heart in verse 21. Draw a line to the word heart in verse 19. Draw a line to the word heart in verse 6. This is the point he's making. That the defiling issue is not an external matter. The real issue is what's inside of us. It's the sinful heart. It's not what's around us. It's not circumstantial. It's not environmental. It's not external. It's internal. It's spiritual. It's the heart. You see, that's really what's happening here. Let's just take the textual view one more time. The real issue wasn't the lack of washing hands or that their hands were dirty. It wasn't really as grave as the offense was against the parents. It wasn't the fact that they weren't using their money. Uh, the real problem was they had a heart that would devise a system to get out of obeying God. Do you see that? I mean, the actions aren't good, yes. But what's more striking is there's a heart beneath those actions. Man, that's stunning. And Jesus Christ here, man, he pinpoints with incredible accuracy the real problem in mankind. It's the wicked heart that devises the evil. And so our, our kind of summary, take-home truth from the text would be this on the screen behind me. In fact, would you read it with me? We do this often. But just read this with me to kind of get a a kind of a, a handle to carry these 23 verses around with. Let's read together. The real defiling issue all must deal with isn't what's around us, but what's inside us, our sinful heart. Now, you may want to buck up at that a bit. Like, man, I'm not that bad. I work hard at being good. I got a good name, and my parents are this. Or I, you, know, you may have reasons to kind of stiffen up at that accusation but I need to share with you that there is a doctrine for what we just saw what Christ experienced and affirmed and asserted here in this narrative actually is taught throughout the Bible there's a name for it we hold to it as a doctrine it's called the doctrine of total depravity say those two words with me ready total depravity you kind of felt odd just saying them didn't you like man is that really describing me yes every single person in this room is totally depraved now this is a doctrine a theological concept taught throughout the Bible from Genesis through the end I've listed a few of the scriptures here on the board Genesis uh, talks about how uh, when God looked upon the sons of men in the days of Noah that his heart was continually evil in Psalms, David talks about how in sin did his mother conceive him. He was brought forth in iniquity. In Ephesians, Paul says that we are dead in sins. And he talks about how this is all of us. The sons of disobedience is kind of his word. And so I just want to make sure that we understand as a church, we believe and hold to the doctrine of total depravity. When we say that, we're meaning two things by this. And I think they revolve around the word extensive and intensive. In other words, the doctrine of total depravity or what in our reform circles some would call the doctrine of radical corruption. You don't hear that word much, but I, I like it a lot because the word radical, the root of the word radical in the Latin language is the, is the word root, actually. And so we talk about total depravity. We're talking about what's at the root of our problem. And the word corruption, uh, the, the, the etymology of that word is the word core, and so in radical corruption, we're not talking about, you know, how bad someone is. We're talking about, like, in their actions. We're talking about just how, how corrupt we are at our core. Does that make sense? See, sometimes people hear total depravity and they think, wow, that must mean utter evil. Like, you see, like, that's like Hitler. Or that's like somebody who just is off the rails and you see them. I mean, they're totally depraved. No, we all are totally depraved. What we mean is we are all at our core, at our root, Sinful by nature and choice. It comes because of Adam's sin. And Romans 5 teaches us that as a result of Adam's sin, one man's sin, 
all of us now are born into sin. Two things we mean by that. It is extensive in that it affects the entire human race. And it's intensive in that it affects the entire entire human person. So one would be the large view. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There is none righteous. No, not one, Romans 3 would say. But it also means that every part of my being is affected. So even though I might have a, a good motive to try something, I don't have a perfect motive. I might have a good mind. I might have a good body. I don't have a perfect mind or a perfect body. In other words, even in my best day, I'm still tainted by sin in every part of my being. So we say that total depravity is extensive in that it affects the entire human race, and it's intensive in that it affects the entire human person. I like to say it with all the P's, actually. It's not the best way to say it, but I love alliteration. You know that. So I say this, that it's extensive in that it affects the entire population, and it's intensive in that it affects the entire human person. But sometimes population sounds like it's just those who are alive in the present. Another P there, right? So I I think the best way to say it is that the entire human race has always been under the effects and guilt of sin. We're born with a sin nature. So all parts of us are tainted by this. Now watch this. You may ask, well, why then do we, such, we see good done in the world? Even my folks who don't follow Jesus. It's because they're actually aware of this. They don't want to admit it. But the reason that people try to do good things is so they can actually restrain their total depravity. You see, God gave us a gift to our, to our race, the human race. He gave the conscience as a gift to kind of keep things in check at times. Plus, his common grace over all the earth is often a restraining force. So total depravity doesn't mean, or radical corruption doesn't mean that we're as bad as we could be. Thank the Lord, Amen. It just means that we'll never be, for sure, as good as we need to be because we are tainted both personally in every way and extensively in every person. This is what Jesus Christ is talking about. That the real issue is the total depravity of every single person. It's the heart. It's that when you were born, both in your nature and by your action, you proved to be a sinner. So did I. So that's the doctrinal lens I want you to see this through. The textual lens that Christ identifies the heart as the real issue. And shows the Pharisees that you may look like you're flying across the country in good shape, but there's there's no cabin pressure and everybody's dead inside. Doctrinally, we call call that total depravity. So the question remains, what do we do with that? I mean, that's some, that's some rugged news, isn't it? That's some difficult information. I mean, if the, if the real issue is the heart, what do they say? If the heart of the matter is the matter of the heart? If, if that's the core root issue, what do we do, Tom? Because something's got to change it. Well, there have been all kinds of ways people have devised to fix the heart. Let me walk you through a couple of them, maybe three or four of them. Just briefly. I think the most textual one, again, we're going to lean on the text, stay rooted here, is many people try to solve the heart problem religiously. This is what the Pharisees did. And by that I mean we're going to try to add things to our life that make us appear good and that make us feel good. These are things that we would consider positive steps. And I just want to be very transparent with you here. This is where the danger is for you in these chairs this morning. I know no one here is going to raise their hand and say, I'm in the Pharisees. I realize that, okay? But you realize that we are the ones who are religious. I mean, you came to church. You probably, maybe you read your Bible in the last few days, hopefully, or the last week, last month. Maybe you gave some money. Maybe you did something nice. You, you, you add things to your life so that, if you're not careful, you, you know, maybe I'll feel better about my statement for God or that I'm, I'm not as bad as I think. I hope that's not our case, but let's be frank. This is one thing religion does when it's out of whack. It makes people think, oh, you're pretty good. 
And people use religion to try to increase their standing or to make themselves feel better or to relieve themselves of guilt or to try to deal with their broken heart, their depravity. People often choose the moral way to deal with the heart. This is the opposite of religion. In religion, we add things to our life. We do things to try to feel better about ourselves, to answer the issue deep inside. In the moral approach, we take things away. We say, you know what? I, I won't lie. I won't steal. I won't have an affair. Now, are those things good? I, I would think not stealing is a good thing, wouldn't you? Being faithful to your wife is a good thing. Your husband, yes. But watch this. Here's God's standard. God says that you shouldn't lust after a woman. So you're operating on the no adultery concept. That's commendable, but it's not perfect. God says don't even lust. So I failed that one. You're operating on the don't steal principle, but God says uh, don't, don't even covet. Wow, I failed that one. Uh, God, you're operating on the don't murder principle. You, you're doing good on that one probably, right? But God says don't hate. And I failed that one. So your pastor's 0 for 3 on those three right there. My sin says you are as well. You've lusted. You've hated. You've coveted. How do you feel about your heart right now? You see, we think, well, I just won't do these things and I'll be morally upstanding. Or I will do these things, I'll be religiously safe. But none of those things affect the heart. How do I know? Because when you lay your head down on your pillow at night, you think of all that you did or didn't do, you still wonder, man, why isn't this heart any better? What's wrong with this thing? I'm still thinking this. I'm still one. And the person without Christ, they know it's just duct tape. <laughs> it's temporary. They know they're flying the Lear jet, just waiting for the fuel to run out, and they know that everything's dead inside. They know there's no cabin pressure. We often try to fix, fix things, fix our hearts politically. If we can get the right leader, we get the right environment, we get the right education system, we get the right party in place, you know, red, blue, purple, green. We saw for a number of years in the 80s and 70s the sense that if we could just control the government, we'd all be better off. And what'd that get us? I'm not saying there's not a place for righteousness in a nation. Sure there is. But the answer to the heart's problem isn't a national um, um, solution. It's not who or who's not president. It's not who's the senator or the governor. In fact, if we've learned anything from history, we've learned that often, even in, our, even in the best regimes, whether it's you know, what do you call it, left or right? Even in the best regimes, we're left wanting because we realize it's not perfect. After World War II, um, C.M. Jode, who was a British intellectual, wrote this in his book, The Recovery of Belief. And I wrote it here. I want you to hear this. He was an atheist in Britain and turned to Christ after World War II. Why? Here's in his words in the book, The Recovery of Belief. He says this, It was because we rejected the doctrine of original sin that we on the left were always being so disappointed. Disappointed by the refusal of people to be reasonable, by the behavior of nations and politicians, and above all, by the recurrent fact of war. Do you see what he's saying? Politically, or you could even say culturally. We couldn't find a way to fix the heart of the problem. We kept thinking it was... Uh, this environment or that surrounding, but nothing would stop the wars, nothing would stop people from trying to get their way at all costs. So politically or culturally, it wasn't an external issue. Another one of his contemporaries, David Cecil, wrote this. He wrote, The jargon of the philosophy of progress taught us to think that the savage and primitive state of man is behind us. But barbarism, barbarianism is not behind us, it is within us. What's he saying? These intellectuals from Britain after the war just realized, wow, I guess having certain kinds of policies or reforms in place didn't solve every problem after all. So some folks try to solve it politically. They try to solve it culturally through uh, you know, reforms and different kinds of education. I think there are folks that try to solve it philosophically as well. And here's the one I think is most interesting. 
I think, and this is not new, but it appears new to us, is if we can just deny that there's a sin issue, we won't feel bad about it. And do, do you see this happening in our culture? Let's just say that everything's okay. So no one now speaks out against any kind of sin. But yet I find that in the, in the Hollywood culture, all the celebrities can to try to do things to make themselves look good. Like if there's no sin, why does it matter how you look? But they keep starting foundations and giving money and setting up businesses to try to help. And so here's my point. You can say all day long, well, there is no such thing as sin, and everybody can make their own decision, and it's okay, whatever you want to be and do. But the truth is, when, when you're alone, in the privacy of your heart, you know something's wrong inside. Every person on this planet knows something's broken inside. That's why you see so many people, no matter what their party or person or location or geography, every person's trying to find some way to fix it. But there's only one way to actually address the issue that Christ in Mark 7 shows us is the real issue, the heart. There's only one way to fix it, to change it, and that is divinely. The heart has to be changed by God. Let me put it to you in a much more blunt fashion. You need an operation by the great physician. You need divine surgery. You need a heart transplant. That's what I need. I need God to take out my evil heart and put in a new heart. You say, Todd, can that happen spiritually? I mean, does that, is that really the, the beginning of the answer? Is that really the, the cure to man's heart problem? It sure is. This is seen several places in the Bible. In Ezekiel, when Israel had sinned against the Lord through idolatry, God punished them by sending them into captivity. Seventy years. In the middle of that time, when Ezekiel was prophesying, Look what God said to his people that he would do for them. On the return out of captivity, God said this, I will give you a new, say it with me, church, heart. Isn't that good to know? Like these are people who are actually wayward and straying, and yet God said, the day's going to come when I'll give you a new heart. I'll put a new spirit within you. I'll take out your, your heart of stone. Of, I'll give you a heart of flesh. In other words, I'll take out what's dead I'll give you what's alive. I'll put my spirit in you. Then you'll want to walk in my ways, he says. Then you'll live in the land. Look at Ezekiel 37. He says this again in the next chapter. He says, I'll put my spirit within you. You'll live. I'll place you in your own land. You'll then know that I am the Lord. I've spoken. I will do it. All of the action in these two chapters is on God. The two words I will are prominent in these two chapters. You see, God specializes in open heart surgery. He takes out what's dead. He puts in his spirit, his new heart. And this is what men and women need. Amen. We don't need to try to fix the old heart. The only way to deal with the real issue inside of us that's gone wrong is to ask God for a new heart and to come to the operating room of the great physician and say, God, would you give me a new heart? Breathe into me your spirit, almighty God. This is what Nicodemus is wondering in John 3. And I love Christ's answer because when Nicodemus asked Jesus, how in the world do you do these things? Jesus didn't answer with an outside-in answer. And by the way, I'm going to tell you my opinion on something. I think Nicodemus was in the crowd in Mark 7. He was a Pharisee of the Pharisees, highly trained, and we know that he took a long time in converting. Nicodemus did not come out of the closet of, of, of Christianity, so to speak, until the resurrection. So there were probably three years in which he was probably in the crowd of the Pharisees. He may have been in the group plotting to kill Jesus, but he always sensed this call, this conviction, like something's not ringing true. This is the Son of God, but how does he do these things? And so finally, at the resurrection, he did kind of come out. I think he was in this crowd in Mark 7, possibly. It's an opinion, all that is. But at some point, he came to Christ by night secretly because he was afraid of what the repercussions would be, and he asked, 
How do you do these things? And Jesus doesn't give an outside in, uh, in answer. He doesn't say, hey, I just fix up the outside. I duct tape a few things. And, you know, it's kind of like this magic show. And then I come. He gives this answer that actually starts on the inside. He doesn't really answer the question Nicodemus asked. He says, Nicodemus, here's what you need to know. If you want to be part of what I'm doing, then you need to have a rebirth. You need to be born again. Now, Christ did not need to be born again. That's not what he's saying. He was God in the flesh among us. But he's saying the reason that, that you, you're wondering what's going on is because this is not an outside-in physical thing happening. What you're watching is an inside-out issue. And if you want to really see with the eyes that can understand, if you want to really experience the kingdom of God, you have to be born again. You've got to have a rebirth. It's amazing. And then Paul said this again in Ephesians chapter 2 when he said that we who were dead in our sins... We who were lost without hope, watch this, verse 4. In, those, in that moment, God, who was rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, say these words together, he made us alive. What has God done? God came to you, put you in his operating room, took out your old, dead, defiled, depraved heart, put his spirit in you, made you alive. That's the only way to solve the real issue we all deal with, and that's our heart. Now, I need to be honest with you on something, and I hope I always am, but I, I don't like I say that. I'll be honest. Of course I'm honest with you, but let me be just blatantly vulnerable with you. You can't afford this. Now follow me. In other words, left to your own resources and merit, you could never afford to go to God's hospital, knock on the door and say, hey, can I get this surgery? You don't have the funds for that. You don't have the credibility, the capacity. You show up at God's hospital wanting heart surgery, wanting a heart transplant, just on your own merit, God turns you away. You do not have the ability to afford this. That's what cultural, moral, religious, philosophical, political people try to do. They try to approach God and with their own clout, their own credibility, their own funds, hey, can, can, can I buy that? But you see, you can't afford a divine surgery. What's beautiful is this. Someone has already paid it for you. Isn't that great, church? Amen. That when Jesus died on the cross, shed his blood and gave his life, he paid in full every bit of the cost it would take for God to give you a new heart. That's right. For three hours, when he hung on the cross, separated from God, he was sin for us. God looked down on that and his substitutionary penal sacrifice was enough where God would say, I have accepted this as the full eternal atonement for mankind's sin. And for all who believe, if they want a heart transplant, I'll give it to them. Watch this, church. It wasn't free, but it's free to you. It cost Christ his life and his blood. He paid the hospital bill you could never afford. But that's the answer. You need a heart transplant by God. And Jesus has made it possible. That's why it says here, he's made us alive together with Christ. Read the next phrase with me. By grace, you have been saved. Man, could the church shout hallelujah? Could we say amen? It is a free gift. But it's not cheap and nor is it free to, to all. Um, it's not cheap and it costs somebody something. It costs Christ his very life and blood. But oh, that God would extend the payment of Christ to our quote-unquote hospital bill and the heart transplant that we all so desperately need is available for all who would simply believe. So, so are, are you following me here? It is vitally crucial that you look at your life today and ask, am I the Learjet 
zooming along, appearing to be in good standing, but if you were to look inside, everything's dead. I'm just waiting for the fuel to run out and then crash. Is that you? Have you dealt with the loss of cabin pressure, so to speak, in your life? The heart issue. If not, I first and foremost, with great urgency, ask you to consider that Jesus Christ is the only one. And I'll use it this way. Who can authorize God to operate on you. He's paid your bill. And if you come to God's hospital and just knock on the door... You say, God, through Jesus, would you save me? God will do exactly that. Have you? Have you trusted in Christ? Have you believed the gospel, the good news about Christ, so that he's taken out your old heart and given you his spirit? Now you say, well, Todd, I have. In fact, you may say, Todd, most folks in this room probably have. I love the fact that we share the gospel each week. I love the fact that we celebrate it. I love hearing it. Is that kind of the point? Well, that is the point today. That's the real defiling issue in Mark 7. That's what we've got to deal with. But let me just say this to you as well. If you know you're born again, you still need to stay on God's operating table. Not so that he can save you again, but so he can monitor your heart. Now watch this. Our hearts tend to wander and stray, don't they? What did John Calvin call them? An idle factory? And so just as we climb up on that operating table and ask God to give us a heart transplant, based on the full and satisfactory purchase of Jesus Christ. So once we're saved, we stay on that operating table. And we ask God to monitor our hearts. I tend to think the Holy Spirit and the Word of God are the two main, is this okay to say, the the two main EKG tools he uses? I don't know if this is medically correct, but he attaches them to us. Man, if we stay on that table, the Word of God and the Spirit of God just always leaning into us, always in authority over us. We're submitting to the Spirit, submitting to the Word. We're following, we're listening. We're out of line. We say, God, that's not right. I don't want to obey the commandments of men. I want to hear the, the, the commandments of God. And, and so we just stay in, in step with the Spirit and stay under the Word. We're on the table. And God just monitors our heart and keeps it close to his. Sometimes we want to jerk those cords off and run our own way, don't we? And our hearts start straying, kind of like King David. Remember that? He was a man after God's own heart, but he found himself committing adultery and then murdering the lady's husband. And what did he say in his prayer of repentance in Psalm 51? He said, Lord, create in me a clean heart. Verse 5. And restore a right spirit. Renew a right spirit within me. Hey, don't jerk off the wires and say, thanks God for the gospel. I'm out of here living my own life now. Man, stay on that table. Stay exposed. Stay under the great physician's care through the word of God and the spirit of God. And I think one of the key ways to do that is through confession. Where every day, as the spirit of God and word of God lean in on us, and we see, oh, yeah, this... I, my heart is, needs adjustment and monitored. We confess that to God. What does John say in his epistle? If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to what? Forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So the truth is, whether today for the first time you're going to trust in Christ and experience a heart transplant, or whether you've already been born again, born from above, had God give you a new heart, and you just want to recommit to staying on the operating table so we can monitor your heart. The real key is to, to let God own your heart, give you a new one, and let him own it and monitor it. That's the key to avoiding this, this trap of trying to appear self-righteous and to, to making things and creating fences and parameters where we, we can suddenly avoid and bypass God's law and we can make ourselves appear to be something we're not. We don't want that. Let's let God change our hearts and let's let God monitor our hearts. That's how we really begin to address the true defiling issue we all have inside of us. A couple of weeks ago, 
I experienced this on a really good level with Julie. The Lord had just been working on my heart in some ways, and I didn't know how to process it totally, and I didn't know how to express it to her. They really weren't about us. It was just about some things that I was dealing with, and the Lord had kind of exposed some, some real sin, some attitudes that weren't right. And, and I knew it, and I wouldn't try to say it, and, and I felt, uh, be honest with you, that's the best way to say it, I just felt very guilty, and that's not a good thing. Conviction's far better. But I knew deep inside it was conviction. And God was just really, you know, sometimes he massages my heart. On this day, man, he was wrenching my heart, you know. He had it in a tight grip. He's like, I'm not letting you go. These are some corners I've got to get in shape. Man, he was squeezing it. So we sat on the patio of, Chipo- the patio of Chipotle one day, just about two and a half hours, or chips and guacamole. She's the best counselor I got. I think I'm hers. I think so. And I just poured out my heart. I said, I've got some areas that I need, I need sanctified in in deep ways. And man, the Lord is so gracious, isn't he? That he, first of all, showed that to me. Just kind of peel back the chest cavity and have you laying there naked on the operating table. But his love is so great. His mercies are so tender. And he said, Todd, I love you. I'm going to work your heart over some more. She, we talked and she helped me. And, and I said to her that day, I said, I, I don't even want to preach Sunday. I've probably never felt that in my life. I mean, preaching is one of the deep, deep loves that I have. And I remember saying to her, I just don't even want to go preach Sunday. And this week, man, the Lord's brought a lot of the joy back to preaching to you beautiful people, sharing his word with our flock. I'm glad for the work that God does in my heart on a regular basis. I want to stay on that table, you know. I want the word of God and the spirit of God to stay plugged in so I can hear his voice, know his word, and then regularly just confess that, God, man, my heart's out of line here. Would you, would you help me? And God always will. I don't know where you are, but could I just ask everyone in this room to get on the operating table? <laughs> Jesus has paid for the surgery. The gospel declares that he will give you a new heart because of Christ's work. So let's just get on there and let's stay there and let's let God continually change what really is the defiling issue we all must deal with. After all, do you want to just keep washing hands? Or do you finally want to let God change your heart? We hope you enjoyed today's message. For more messages, visit firstfamily.church forward slash sermons or subscribe to our podcast feed. Thanks for listening.